Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we uh, we saw there, I showed the kids a picture of Becky and my wedding day. And, uh, you know, we talked about how it was a very exciting day for us. We had spent the previous decade or so a uh, little bit preoccupied with trying to find that special someone. And uh, there may have been one or two prospects, but it didn't take long for, for us to find each other. We were quite young when we met. And then to come to a place of being certain that we didn't want to spend the rest of our lives without each other. So on July 2nd, 2005, we said our wedding vows uh, in front of our family, our friends, few other people that were there for reasons I'm not sure about. I think parents had something to do with it. Um, but anyway, in front of our family and friends and a few others, and God, we vowed to spend the rest of our lives together in the good times and in the bad times. Now, our wedding was a big deal to us, uh, but it was also a time that was, where weddings were kind of just the thing we did on weekends. Uh, some of you may know what I mean. There is a season in life when it seems like all your friends, cousins, co-workers, other people you find yourself somehow connected to seem to be getting married. And there does seem to be wedding after wedding after wedding. And it's a lot, uh, but it's an exciting season of life. It's a season filled with hope for everyone's bright future. And as I say hope, I remember that at our premarital course, uh, we were told to go into our marriage thinking divorce is not an option. And at the time, being young and in love and full of idealism, that seemed like a given. Uh, it, it really was something I'd never considered as a possibility. So it was a shocking awakening uh, when the first of my friends, who happened to be a pastor, announced that he and his wife were separating because his wife had been unfaithful. And since then, very sadly, we've seen a number of marriages that we went to the wedding and witnessed along with family and friends and God. We've seen those marriages fall apart. And, and this happens for various reasons, and some of the reasons are legitimate. And sometimes they're not. But it's always very sad. It does happen. Last week, we addressed what are referred to as what seems like one of the easier commandments to keep. You shall not murder. But we also reflected on how we live in a world that's obsessed with dark things and violence and how easily and quickly things can escalate, how easily and quickly we can cross the line from all in good fun, casual curiosity, facing our fears to anger, contempt, disdain, hatred, to murder. So today we're going to follow a similar track. But we begin with a subject with which our culture is even more obsessed. And that is adultery. Today we look at the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And as we've been journeying through the Ten Commandments, we've been looking at them through the lens of why God gave them. And we've observed that asked after rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, God spoke the law to them through Moses 
as he led them towards the land he had promised for them, where his intended desire for his people was that they would live in freedom and make the most of their freedom, and that this meant serving him, living in the way he intended for all of us, living according to the purpose for which we were created. God didn't give the law to ruin our lives, to spoil our fun, but on the contrary, to show us the way to enjoy life to the fullest, as he intended for us, the life for which we were created. This is what God wants for us because he loves us. So the Ten Commandments are about how to live life to the fullest, and the first four commandments are about how this mean God means God wants us to love him back. They're about how to love God. And then the rest are about how he wants us to love each other as he loves us, as we love ourselves. So we're in the middle now, and commandments six to eight then present us with these very general prohibitions that help us to love each other, not to murder them, not to murder our neighbors, not to commit adultery, and not to steal. These are very general statements, and as such, they only set the minimum standards, the very minimum of what it would take to come close to God's purposes for us. The minimum way you can love someone is not to murder them. <laughs> Today's commandment is about how to love our neighbor, how to live in community, but specifically how to live in community with and love another in the context of marriage. But as we'll see, this also does affect the life of the community as well. So in the Ten Commandments, God sets the very minimum requirements for a successful marriage, with the Seventh Commandment being, don't commit adultery. That's the starting point for a su successful marriage. So let's look at why. In our Old Testament reading this morning, we heard how God created man and woman in his image. And we've discussed a few times before how being created in the image of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, means we were created to also live in community. So God ordained his intended purpose for the life of a man and woman together. Marriage. <laughs> It's one beautiful way that the life in community, the fellowship, the love that we see in the Holy Trinity is expressed in our lives. It doesn't mean that all people must be married. Our children aren't. God calls some to an unmarried life of faithfulness and chastity, and this calling enables them to devote their lives to God's service in a, in a different way, without the responsibilities of marriage and family. And they do require a lot of focus and attention, uh, our time, our energy, our resources, our devotion. And not dedicating those things to our marriages and our families is another way that they can fall apart. It's important that we do that. But we do see in Genesis 2 that marriage is a union that is ordained by God as the exclusive, lifelong, covenantal union of love between one man, and one woman. 
God-ordained marriage for mutual friendship, for companionship, for help, for comfort in times of prosperity and in times of adversity, in the good times and the bad times. Of course, also for the purpose of procreation, of going forth and multiplying those who are brought up and nurtured in the faith of God as well. And all of this benefits families, the church, and society. But to keep this bond of marriage healthy and strong uh, is an ongoing, lifelong challenge. Uh, it's, it's not always easy. It's often a challenging task. But the Bible offers numerous instructions and insights on how to do this. As we've seen, our uh, instruction today is the bare minimum given in the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. Any intimacy between persons who are not married to each other, specifically when at least one of them is married to another. Now we should take a moment to note that in the ancient Near East, even before the Ten Commandments, adultery was considered wrong. In fact, it was commonly referred to as the great sin. This was because in the ancient Near East at the time that Moses presented the law to the people, women were considered to be the property of a man. Thankfully, hopefully, this seems absurd to most of us now, uh, living in a world where over the last 2,000 years, like it or not, uh, we have been shaped by Christian values. But before this and for a while after, uh, a woman was considered her father's property until she married when she then became the property of her husband. So this meant that adultery was really seen as the violation of a man's property rights. Sorry. Uh, and that may be why this command uh, is connected with the commands on stealing and coveting, the commandments that follow afterwards. They would have been seen as commandments about property. So the question then is, why would God allow that connection? Why would he allow this? If we look back at our Genesis reading, we find God's intended purpose at the time of creation. It's up here with people living with God in the garden. But then we read on just a little bit further to find the, the experience of the fall. Uh, and this was because of sin. And then the rest of the Bible, we read about how God has been rescuing redeeming us. But in the Bible, we see that this rescue, this redemption, isn't a jump from here to here right away. It's a very slow journey, a slow path back towards God. And the reason it's slow is because of sin, because of the hardness of human hearts, because we're not receptive to God or his purposes for us. We think we know better. So in the Old Testament and in Exodus we read about the beginnings of this journey on this path back towards redemption. Things are not nearly as they should be yet, and that's why we understand that women were still considered property of men. We also see that God allowed polygamy, even from some of his greatest servants, Abraham, etc., because things were not where they were intended to be yet. They were on the path. As we've observed before, God's law is like a signpost to show us the way to guide us back to him. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. 
to show us the way to life to the fullest, as he intended the life for which we were created. And God's intentions for marriage are the exclusive, lifelong, covenantal union of love between one man and one woman. Now, as we've also discussed now, God also gave these commandments as a way of revealing something about himself, something of who he is, his character. And so, like others, the seventh commandment tells us something about God. That is God's faithfulness. We've seen that God remembered his people in Egypt. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. He's a God who makes and keeps covenants, who keeps promises, who doesn't turn away from or cheat against his people. God is faithful, and he wants us to be faithful to him and to each other and in marriage, our spouses. But we've also seen that God is a jealous God, that he loves us so much that he won't tolerate rival gods, rival loves, anything being placed above him or coming between him and his people. And this is also reflected in God's intentions for faithfulness in marriage. Marriage is a reflection of the faithful love that unites God and his people, and this means it is also a holy covenant between one man and one woman and God. This means that adultery, then, is a sin against one's spouse, but also a sin against God, in whose name marriage vows are made. Adultery is also a sin against the community against our neighbors because it leads to destroying marriages and this destroys the home. The home is the fabric of the community. Committing adultery isn't just a sin against one person, but it's against one's children, one's family, one's friends, one's church, one's society. And sadly, we all have experience, whether direct or indirect, of when marriages fall apart for various reasons, how So many people are affected. How so much pain is spread around. And the bonds of marriage are severed. So adultery, which then leads to that, is a sin against one's spouse, children, family, friends, church, society, and God. Now when God delivered this law to Moses, he came down, as we've seen in fire and thunder, lightning, clouds, and smoke onto Mount Sinai to deliver the law to his chosen people Israel to show his people the way, the path towards redemption. But as we've continually observed throughout our journey through the Ten Commandments, God later came down in flesh, blood, in person, in Jesus And again on a mountain, as we heard this morning from the Sermon on the Mount, from the Gospel according to Matthew, he delivered the law to all people and led the people further along the path towards redemption, towards reconciliation with God. Jesus explains, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to the law saying, You've heard it said. And he then goes on to explain how the law is to be properly fulfilled. Getting to the bottom of not just the letter of the law, not just 
the very basic general prohibitions, but the meaning behind it. And last week we looked at how simply refraining from murder does not fulfill that law. That the law is directed at the motivation behind the commandment as well. And that in the case of that, the sixth commandment, this means the law is also addressing the disdain, the devaluing of another, usually as the result of anger. So then likewise, Jesus goes on to explain that simply refraining from adultery does not fulfill that law either. This law also addresses the motivation behind the commandment. And this means the law is also addressing desire or lust, longing for another, whether you are married or whether they are married. Both of these discussions about anger, desire, and lust show that God's concerned not only with outward conformity to the law, not just making sure we don't do the thing we're not supposed to do, but also with inward obedience, making sure we don't think about doing it or want to do it. Because God's concerned about the purity not just of our bodies, but also of our hearts and minds. So just as he did with the sixth commandment about murder, Jesus also heightens, extends, intensifies the seventh commandment by deepening the meaning of adultery and saying for that desire for someone other than your spouse or if they're married is mental adultery and thus sin. That if the act is wrong, so then is the intention. Now Jesus isn't condemning natural interest in the opposite sex or even healthy sexual desire. He's not condemning considering someone attractive. There's nothing wrong with recognizing beauty. If there was, my wife would cause everyone to sin every time she enters the room. Jesus is referring, though, to the uh, deliberate, repeated consideration of adultery with someone, filling one's mind with desires for and fantasies about a person, wanting that person to belong to us in the way that a man and woman do belong to each other in marriage. Desires that would result in adultery if acted upon. For someone who is already married, desire of this kind is a problem because it pulls us away from the unconditional commitment we're supposed to have for our spouse. It creates a separation between us that can and quickly escalate, either over time or in an instant, in one small moment of weakness to action. Jesus knows that sinful actions are more dangerous than sinful desires, but he also knows that sinful desires can be just as damaging and that if left unchecked, if allowed to continue, these desires can escalate and result in actions, actions that are harmful in so many ways as they are deliberate obedience of God. They do destroy marriages, families, homes, communities. They always hurt so many others in addition to the one committing them. Last week we looked at how, for many of, us, many of us, the Sixth Commandment seems easier to keep. It seems like a freebie. If 
For many of us, though, the seventh commandment is one that's a lot more difficult. And people mess up all the time. But as we've continually observed throughout our journey through the Ten Commandments, while Moses was the mediator, went up the mountain at Mount Sinai to receive the law, Jesus is our true mediator, who stood on the mountain in flesh and blood to give the fulfillment of the law, and who then went up a hill at Calvary and died on a cross to bear the punishment for us breaking the law, who now offers forgiveness and cleansing to all who have failed to keep the law. So that as we read in the Gospel according to John, when a woman was brought before Jesus on the accusation of adultery, Jesus didn't condemn her. He didn't judge her. He didn't punish her. Instead, he forgave her and sent her on her way, saying, from now on, sin no more. God has called each of us here today to faithfulness, but sadly, we all fall short in some way or another. God's intended purpose for us, from the purpose for which we were created. But if we come to Jesus, if we turn to Jesus in repentance, there is forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is healing, there's a fresh start. But how then, in a culture that is so obsessed with adultery, to the point some have labeled it a culture of adultery, how then can we avoid these desires and actions? and instead sin no more and live out God's intention behind the seventh commandment for our lives. Our friend Daryl Johnson laid out six steps that I've paraphrased for us here today. He suggests that first we can recognize that the pressures are real. They are there. This isn't something we can just claim to not bother us. This, this is a real problem for everybody. Second, we can expose any current myths about human sexuality, such as, for example, that it's just a, a biological exchange with no emotional, spiritual ramifications, or that we should ex pursue and explore our sexual desires in whatever way we want, other than, of course, the many ways we shouldn't, our culture still does consider many of our desires inappropriate and even illegal, thankfully. Third, we can recognize that acts do not come out of nowhere. Just as Jesus teaches, the act of adultery comes out of the adultery in the heart. Fourth, we need to turn to the Holy Spirit for His grace and power to equip enable and strengthen us against these temptations. And then fifth, we can make it a lot easier for the Holy Spirit by staying away from places, images, media, and the people that arouse these wrong desires in our hearts. So identify the pressures, expose the myths, remember that actions don't come out of nowhere, turn to the Spirit of God, Stay away from the things that arouse these desires. And then sixth, remember that we are created in the image of God. 
We are God's image bearers. We've been created to live in perfect fellowship, immunity, and unity. And the bond of marriage is a part of this, and it is a covenant promise that we make to remain faithful for life between ourselves, our spouses, our community, and God. So now let's pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit that he would enable us to stay faithful to our spouses, to one another, and to God. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have ordained, consecrated the covenant of marriage. That you've shown us how to be faithful with the covenant you've made with us through your relationship with us and your love for us. So we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would equip, enable, and strengthen all of us. Would you grant us the wisdom and the strength to stay away from the places, images, media, and people that arouse wrong desires in our hearts? For those that are not married, we pray for them, Lord. For those you've called to singleness at this time, we pray that you would strengthen them. Not to look at another who is married with desire, with the desire against which Jesus warns us. We pray that their lives may be devoted in faithfulness and chastity to your service. We pray your blessing on them. Those who are married, we pray... Pray as well, Lord, for those who have made this covenant promise to one another. We pray that they would love, honor, and cherish each other in faithfulness, and in patience, in wisdom, and in true godliness. I pray, Lord, that you would send your blessing on their homes, that they, they would be havens of peace, of godliness, and of blessing to their families and to their communities, to the church. Pray all these things through Jesus Christ our Lord.